BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, we're Carlene and Jill, hosts of Breaking Beauty Podcast, the show all about the breakthrough people, products, and moments in beauty. On our show, you're going to find hella inspiring guests like Emily Weiss of Glossier, and you'll get beauty tips galore from the top pros in the industry, like Kim Kardashian's makeup guru. And you'll hear skincare secrets from the likes of Dr. Pimple Popper. Plus, you'll get shopping help with our Damn Goods episodes, where we review the latest products hitting store shelves to let you know what's actually worth your money. Listen every Wednesday to Breaking Beauty Podcast. Welcome to Real Pod. It's your host, Victoria Garrick, and this is the podcast where we hold nothing back. Oh, so we're getting deep, huh? I really cried for 12 days straight. Why do I want to be perfect? There's nothing in my life that is perfect. Every week, I'll bring you honest, unfiltered, and eye-opening conversations to help uncover the real in all of us. I crave the type of content that you're talking about. I actually felt insecure. Oh my God, am I going to cry? Let me just unload everything. (laughs) New episodes every Wednesday. Leave those filters at the door because it's time to get real. If I could travel back in time to the fifth grade when I faked sick and put the hairdryer on my forehead like I saw in the Lizzie McGuire movie to have a fever because I didn't want to go to school. So I laid in the living room of my family's, um, in my childhood home on our brown squishy couch. I'll never forget it. And watched Drake and Josh. And I could transport to that moment and say, hey, little Vic, one day you're going to be sitting down with Josh Peck himself to hear about not only like his life story, but what was really going on in his life when you were sitting at home laughing and watching his comedy on television. I simply, I don't know if I would have believed you. I wouldn't have believed you. Well, that day is here. I had the incredible honor of sitting down with Josh Peck and hearing all about his journey, which is truly an incredible one. Josh just released his first book, Happy People Are Annoying, which we're going to get into that title with him on the show today, don't worry, where he details his most captivating, heartwarming, and hilarious stories from the body image issues he experienced when he was labeled, quote, the fat funny kid, not having a father figure, to even things like grocery store run-ins with Adam Sandler and that time Judd Apatow reprimanded him. That's a story he's telling us today. Gear up for it. This episode is nostalgic, funny, and inspiring. I'm a huge fan of Josh, always have been, but even more so now. 
I want to give a quick shout out to Brie. Hey, Brie. She left a five-star review saying, the best thing. I love this podcast so much. Makes me feel so good about myself. Brie, we love a short and sweet positive review. We love to know that RealPod makes you feel great. That is what I'm hoping each and every one of you feel after listening to these episodes, that you're learning something, you're feeling related to, you're inspired. Hopefully you're laughing a little bit here and there. And it's okay if it's at me. I'm, I'm cool with that. This makes my day. So Brie, thank you so much for listening to RealPod. I so appreciate it. And thank you to each and every one of you. I know you have lots of options, lots of things you could be doing with your time. The fact that you choose to spend it here with me is everything. And I will never, ever take that for granted. If you want to be the special shout out on next week's episode, head over to iTunes where you can leave us a review or just be sure to rate the podcast wherever you listen. It super, super helps out the show. Don't forget to subscribe. We're bringing you brand new episodes every single Wednesday. So hit that subscribe button so you can get that automatic download. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode with, drumroll please, Nickelodeon star, comedian, author of Happy People Are Annoying, Josh Josh, how's your spirit today? How are we? Do we still have energy? <laughs> better now. Better now that I'm here with you and this this just feels right. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited. I'm having like major nostalgia. I used to, when I used to fake sick and skip school, Drake and Josh was my show of choice. It's funny. My, my wife's cousin, my wife is Paige and her cousin Paige, funny enough, she got like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm talking out of school year, but or I'm telling the story. It's it's a while ago. She got like suspended oh, at school. Okay. And she was like, it's okay because I'm just going to watch Drake and Josh reruns anyway. Yes. And I was like, well, that is a silver lining, isn't it? See, now I'm not the only one. I feel better about it. Well, I'm so honored to have you. Um, <laughs> and your book, obviously, congratulations, first of all. That must have been a feat. I mean, to write, publish a book. Now it's here in the flesh with a title that... You can't, you can't like see that title and be like, I don't want to know what's in the pages. You know what I'm saying? How'd you guys come up with happy people are annoying? It was, you know what? If I, if I'm telling on myself, it was my book agent. I, I wrote this proposal that was like 30 pages and there was sort of like these earnest titles, like everything I wish someone had told me or Mm -hmm. the millennials guide to survival. And like, and she just being as good as she is was like, you know, people a, have a view of you and many people see you as like this guy with the super like sort of punchable face and the cheesy demeanor. <laughs> but but also like so much of your story was sort of defining what happiness was for you and not just what you thought it was as a teenager in your 20s where I thought it was reserved for like just attractive people or people with generational wealth or people with a certain amount of followers on Instagram. And so weirdly, like the book grew into the name. Right. And I can't help but see that sentence, though, and get the vibe that there's like not resentment. I mean, you just kind of mentioned, right, you thought happiness was reserved for those types of people. And I was shocked to kind of dive in and learn more about your story because, I mean, you had essentially the dream. I mean, kids like me, right, wanting to grow up and now I have a podcast and working on things, watching child stars on like Nickelodeon or Disney or whatever it was. You know, we would watch and think, oh, that must be the life. Sure. That must be. I mean, you've made it. That That's that's what everyone had wanted to, to come to find now. 
that that's not how you really felt, which is also interesting. We've had this long delay in hearing your story because there wasn't an Instagram that you could go live on at 16 years old and kind of reveal, hey, things aren't too hot, you know? I think you make a great point. I I think at at best, this book is like a self-help book hiding as a memoir. I, I had this desire to sort of share these things, these challenges, these sort of skills that I had accrued over the years. And I was like, if there's any silver lining to struggle, it's being able to help the next sort of, I don't even want to say generation, but just like the next person. Because so much of my life has been aided by people being willing to be vulnerable and transparent with me and say, I felt lost exactly at the same time. And I was able to walk through it with grace. And here's how I did it. So I wanted to sort of write something self-help be. But many of those books, and I love a good self-help book. I mean, I don't read them, but I buy them and I put them on my bookshelf. And they... <laughs> right. The 5 a.m. club has been sitting in my dresser for how, yeah. I don't know how long. <laughs> Please. Yeah. I just want to look impressive. Like I just like walk around with the Atomic Habits, but yeah. I don't actually read it. It's but like... My Atomic Habit is never reading <laughs> Yeah. It's like douchey English majors who are like just walking around with like Dostoevsky. I'm like, <laughs> do you like Russian literature? So I realized though that I did have this unique thing of like a lot of people around my age and younger sort of growing up watching maybe me or just the show. And so that people could literally look back in moments and say, oh, when Josh was 21, he was battling this or he was insecure with this. I just thought he was locked in a treehouse. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's what we thought. That's totally what we thought. And your childhood, too. I mean, there's so much going on. And the fact that at the age of like eight, you're already scheming how you can make a name for yourself and make a career. I mean, when did you first realize you were funny? Well, I, I think like funny is born out of really usually unfunny circumstance. So I was chubby and you don't want to be the sad chubby kid. You don't want to be like the kid who's, you know, contemplating the universe while also, you know, sneaking fruit snacks from your buddy's snack cabinet. Like immediately I saw that comedy was a way in which for me to like basically grab the energy of the room and direct it any way I wanted to. Instead of being sort of powerless in that scenario and walking into a room and feeling like, oh, when's someone going to make a comment? When's someone going to make sort of like a underhanded, sarcastic remark mm-hmm. this way? I could be like, no, no, I'm the funny one in the room. I'll be the one. And maybe I'll I'll take the piss out of myself, but I would sort of get to control it. So I think it was just born out of being like chubby and, and not wanting to be at a disadvantage. I struggled with body image issues in college more so, and I had a binge eating disorder. And I always like to ask people when the wheels turned or clicked for them that they became conscious of their body hmm. or food. And, you know, for me, I was 12. I came home from sleepaway camp. I accidentally lost weight. And someone says to me, oh, you look so lean. And I, I say, what's lean? I'd never heard that word. They said, thin, you look thin, you look good. And so uh, this young girl, I'm like, okay, eating what le- eating less means losing weight means lean means good means compliment. I want more of that. Like wow. when did things click for you at maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Wow. Isn't it amazing how it's like, it's that insidious. It's like this nuanced comment that the person who said that to you meant no harm. Mm-hmm. And yet it, I know exactly like, where we were. I triggered. know everything about it. And it wasn't. And that was a compliment. But it it hit the domino for so many worse things, because as we know now, any comments on body image, like you never know how that affects someone. So when did you have that like awakening? Totally. And and in this day and age, like at least, and I can only speak for me, but someone who's certainly gone through like traumatic body change, body issues. Like I also 
have done enough work to where I know certain people who can't take a good or a bad comment mm-hmm. about their body. They're just like, do not comment. Like, and I don't put people in that position. I just go, thankfully I've fortified myself enough to be able to sort of like have a bit of an armor that I never had. But I don't know, you know, I think, look, my mom has struggled with food and body stuff throughout a lot of her life. My grandfather dropped dead at 50 from eating and drinking and smoking, you know, in excess. And so I just knew that the pecs, like food was a menacing force for the mm. pecs from as far back as I can remember. And then, yeah, I just, I grew up in the 90s. Like there was nothing wrong at that time or people felt as though there was nothing wrong about commenting like, don't eat that, that's too much. You're going to get fat. Don't eat this or look you, at you. You said in the book it was open season mm-hmm. for kids that looked like you. And I think that was so true. I mean, you were kind of the maybe the brunt of every joke was your body. And so your superpower was, okay, I'm going to get on the other side of it and I'm going to join the cool kids who are actually being really mean and I'll be mean to myself too. Yeah, or like, it's, you know, it's it's about taking the air out of the room. before. Like, if I can make fun of myself, then for them to jump on me would almost be hacky. You know, like once I'm like, I'm going to I'm going to take the piss out of myself so effectively and strategically that for them to pile on another joke would just seem like overdoing it. And and it, again, it was in search for power. It was this idea of like, oh, I can I'm the one, even though it doesn't feel great to go after myself, it, it's so much better to be in control of this and to feel powerless. Because that was what I was really afraid of, was sitting in a room and, and taking some emotional punches without any way of countering. It's a little bit like, oh, okay, if I reject myself first, you can't do it. Yeah, and it's also acknowledging the reality. It's also trying to, you know, so much of people pleasing is trying to read other people's minds. And so it's like, oh, I know what you want or I know what you're thinking or allow, allow me to anticipate your needs so that there's never a moment where I'm not giving you what you want. So it was like, you know, I know you want to go after me, so I'm going to circumvent this. But not everyone did. And then some people were so emotionally stunted that I could almost tell what that what they were trying to do was say I'm worried about you and I'm not quite sure you know how dangerous this is to be as heavy as you are and I don't know how to help you that's what they wanted to say but instead it came out in some ridiculous them telling me what to do you you need to do this like in shaming me, what they really wanted to say was, I'm so damn worried and I'm, I have no idea what to do to help you. But do you believe that? I feel like generations ago, people were just like fat phobic and like, I don't, they say, oh, I care, but did they? I think both. Okay. I think it depends who it was. I think certainly I had family members who were like, I'm so damn scared for you. Cause like grandpa died at 50. Like we, you know, like the peck, overweight pecs don't, don't tend to, you know, live well into their seventies and eighties. And so I think there was a small part, but you're right. Yeah. People are totally, were totally fat phobic then and probably still are. Right. So, I mean, just high level, you recognize what your superpower could be. It's beneficial for you. How does one get on like a Nickelodeon show? How does all that come about? I mean, is your mom, I feel like we all have this vision that these child stars have these parents that are like, my kid's a star and they're going to call everyone and like just try to sell and exploit their kids. Sure. But it doesn't sound, it sounds like you were doing it for yourself, right? Yeah, I was exploiting myself. That'll be the next book, Exploiting Myself. <laughs> I, uh, well, I, I was doing stand-up comedy in New York 
I was going to performing arts high school. I'm 12 years old. Yeah, I know. 18. I'm like, you're like some stand-up comedy in New York. I'm like, you were 12, right? <laughs> it wasn't going to be Little, Little League, you know? <laughs> <laughs> go big or go home. <laughs> and I wind up auditioning at Nickelodeon a couple of days a week because I was like, I'm... I'm young, chubby, and ambitious. You need me. (laughs) Trust me. And the dream was to be on all that because that was like SNL for kids. It really was. So dope. I I, I wanted to be on it so bad. I never could get it, but I wound up doing this movie for Nickelodeon called Snow Day. I remember we got the call. It was a Friday night. And my agent at the time was like, I hope you have your passports ready because you're flying to Canada next Wednesday to go do this movie for four months. And my mom and I are like, we don't have passports. Like, <laughs> you don't need a passport to go to Atlantic City. Um, <laughs> what is this? The Jersey Shore. So I'm in Canada and I'm making this guy laugh one night. My mom, being like the great Jewish mother she is, sees this guy and sort of sidles up to me and goes, you know who he is? He's the president of Nickelodeon. You should tell him you want to be on all that. And I did. And I don't know what the lesson is other than shoot your shot. (laughs) Sign in the DMs. (laughs) Yeah, go for it. Because nine months later, he called me. It was a guy named Albie Hecht. And he said, Josh, I want to let you know I'm going to move you and your mom out to California to go be on The Amanda Show. And six months later, we were making Drake and Josh. Wow. Wow, that's yeah. wild. And and actually, the first few episodes of The Amanda Show, wasn't it? You were kind of like put on ice. You didn't have like a huge role. I mean, what did you learn from that experience thinking, oh my God, I'm going to make it. And then you get there and you don't have much to do. Totally. No, they put me on ice. They didn't know who I was. Like, I think the president pulled some slight presidential power moves and was like, hey, if you want a second season, put Peck on your show. And but I didn't, I wasn't resentful because I was used to sort of like, again, walking into situations at a disadvantage. And what I saw in someone like Amanda Bynes, who was six months older than me, but so ahead of me in skill and ability, I was like, oh man, I really need to watch her. Because I didn't know what I was doing. All I did was sort of repeat bits I heard on Fresh Prince or or Ace Ventura or Billy Madison. Like I wasn't Billy some- Billy Madison's so good. Dude, I wasn't some skilled performer. I see Adam Sandler in you. Oh man, what a compliment. I hope money-wise, right? <laughs> He's so rich. I saw him the other day at the farm shop. Do you get like starstruck when you see someone like that? Or are you like, oh, I'm Josh Pack. I can go say hi. Adam Sandler, I get starstruck. For sure. Yeah. Um, He's like, yeah, he's the man. He's the goal. And I was like, oh, and you know me, I'm immediately assessing. I'm like, okay, likes cream in his coffee. (laughs) You're like, what? Yeah, I could bring him something next time. I want to drink the cream in my coffee now, too. Totally. I'm like, I'm a sweet, I'm like a sweet and and heavy cream guy myself. Like, we could really get along. I'm like, French vanilla coffee, mate? Sandler? Sandman? But yeah, so I I didn't know if I was good, but I, I, I knew that if I really didn't spend my time being resentful of the people putting me on ice and instead tried to pick up on what was making these people as talented as they were, that I'd be in good shape. And and it worked out because a few months in, they were like, you've got something. Like, we'll start writing to you a little bit. And by the end of the show, I felt like really a part of the, the cast. And you mentioned how it only took a matter of time before you got your own show, which was Drake and Josh. Yeah. Now, before I even ask these questions, Josh, like just getting real here. I mean, does it bother you that like we have like we go you have to go back and talk about childhood? I mean, I know when I on a totally smaller scale yeah. have to talk about volleyball at USC. I'm like, but what about me now? Sure. So does does any of that come up for you? I always wonder with someone essentially like you where everyone is just wanting you to say the line from when you were 15. I mean, does that annoy you or do you have do you get it? How do you feel about it, knowing I'm about to ask you Drake and Josh questions? <laughs> well, you know, the reality is, is that I look at people that I, 
like, that I really look up to, like Steve Carell. And he's one of our greatest actors, right? I mean, he's done so much, I mean, Academy Award nominated work. And yet on some level, he'll always be Michael Scott because that's the way we fell in love with him. Mm-hmm. And, and that's great because it's a great show. And when I interviewed Zach Braff for my podcast, Male Models, and I, I remember that he said something, he told this story about George Clooney and Russell Crowe in the late 90s being on this, this flight together. And they sort of walk into the airport and Russell Crowe comes out first and he's like, you know, proper movie star. So people are a little apprehensive to approach. And then George Clooney at the time wasn't the gigantic movie star yet. He was just on ER, which was huge, but it was a TV show. And he walked into the airport and everyone goes, George, like, because he was a part. When you, when people allow you into their homes to entertain their family and, and Drake and Josh, it's not, oh, mom and dad watch succession when the kids go to bed or the kids are watching, you know, whatever. I don't know. My son likes Blippi. I I don't really have good references right now. (laughs) I, I don't mind Blippi, but it's like it was truly like a family show like everyone could sit down and enjoy it and that's special Mm -hmm. and so you can't choose when people marry themselves to you you can't choose what enters the zeitgeist you can't choose your hits this is why billy joel doesn't play uptown girl anymore like it's just it is what it is i'm proud that families and a lot of people for many years have gotten a lot of joy out of the show it's true even my mom was like i remember that show good luck today sweetie you know nice shout out mom (laughs) yeah shout out mom listens to every episode as a mom should yes yes as she said so You're on Drake and Josh. And as I kind of mentioned in the beginning, it seems like this amazing, perfect world. And honestly, in the show, I mean, on those teen shows, you're not getting really deep. Like no one's talking about depression. No one's talking about anxiety. It's all saying at like a good surface level. Meanwhile, you then finish the scene, you hop off set, and then you're back in your life. How did you feel kind of portraying one thing to America? And then in your life, knowing that there were things so much deeper that weren't out there. Yeah, I I think mostly it was just the physical insecurity because I knew I was sort of introducing myself to the world in a body that I wasn't comfortable in. And so it was contending that. And the show wasn't really popular when it was on the air. It was popular with kids and it was a great show for kids, but it certainly has only really sort of become ubiquitous or, or sort of I think because of social media culture and just reruns and whatnot, over the last 10 years is where it's really weirdly hit a stride. So it was kind of great because I was doing this job that I love, that I was proud of, and my favorite kind of comedy, which is broad and sticky, what sort of comes to me naturally. And then I would walk off set and it wasn't like, I was on Stranger Things or the kid from Modern Family. I was a kid that was popular with 10 year olds so I could go home to my two-bedroom apartment and watch hockey with my best friend, Len. So I was sort of living in two worlds, which was very average, normal existence, and then getting to do this very cool job. This episode is sponsored by Cozy Earth. We love finding new and sustainable ways that we can support our lovely planet Earth. Cozy Earth develops and crafts high-quality goods with responsibly and sustainably sourced materials from the Earth so that you can get the restorative sleep you need to curate your sanctuary and recharge from the comfort of your home. At Cozy Earth, you can shop bedding. It's like sleeping on a cloud, truly. Women's wear, bath towels. And I mean, hey, Mother's Day is coming up. You can gift that special lady in your life luxury she's guaranteed to love. Cozy Earth is also temperature regulating, which means it will keep you cool and comfortable all night long. I know Max absolutely hates overheating at night. So sleeping in sheets that are temperature regulating is game changing. 
Also, Cozy Earth has been featured in Oprah's favorites list four years in a row. You know it's good if our girl Oprah Winfrey for four years in a row is featuring Cozy Earth. They also have 10-year warranties on all of their products. That is so important because then you know you're getting quality, quality products that Cozy Earth is confident you are going to love and you're going to enjoy, which is so important, especially when buying and choosing the pieces for our home. Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for RealPod listeners. It's 35% off site-wide when you use the code RealPod. That's 35% off site-wide when you use the code RealPod. That is a massive, massive discount. Definitely take advantage of it. Head over to CozyEarth.com and use code RealPod for 35% off. Once again, that's CozyEarth, C-O-Z-Y-E-A-R-T-H.com and use code RealPod at checkout for 35% off. As you all know, I'm trying to come up with a new morning slash wellness routine. I just feel like I don't have enough routine in my life. And so as I'm thinking about what I want to do, right, not use my phone when I wake up, meditate more, one thing that I know will be a part of my routine every single morning without fail and has been for months already is Athletic Greens. I love Athletic Greens. I use it literally every day. It gives you all the important nutrients and vitamins your body needs in just one tasty scoop in this one simple drink. You fill up a cup of water in the morning and then you add one scoop of Athletic Greens. And once you consume that scoop, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients, it supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, all the things. Why do I love Athletic Greens? I love Athletic Greens because it checks off those boxes for me right when I wake up. And then I don't really have to worry or stress about getting all those vegetables and nutrients all day long because I already had my Athletic Greens. I literally could not scream my love for Athletic Greens enough at the top of a mountaintop because to make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving RealPod listeners a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with their first purchase. So all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash real pod. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash real pod to pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. With your first purchase, you're getting a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. The travel packs are so amazing. So clutch, you're getting five free of them. That's five free days of athletic greens on the road. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash realpod. Once again, athleticgreens.com slash realpod. So you mentioned, you know, presenting yourself to a world in a body or just a version of you that you weren't super happy about. Yeah. So what point in your at least teenage years do you start thinking about how, yeah, your childhood affected you? And yeah, maybe at eight and 10 and 12, it was a lot to be pressured about jobs. Like, what did it feel like when that started to surface? I think it was more... I I just knew that I had sort of, by 17, I had sort of missed out on a lot of my early teenager years. And it wasn't for lack of opportunity. Or I had friends who were bigger guys and weight didn't affect them in any way. I always say like, weight can be a manifestation of a lot of things. It, it, in its best version, it can be a manifestation of loving life mm -hmm. and dining and eating and enjoying. And it's not, uh, it doesn't encumber you in any way, really. For me, it was a manifestation of a lot of discomfort. and that, Like a coping mechanism? Yeah, uh, totally. A defense mechanism. It was my first foray into overdoing something that had a slight numbing effect. Mm -hmm. So while I looked at my friends who could totally enjoy and eat and 
whip their shirts off at the pool while I was sort of putting on my second turtleneck to go into the hot tub. <laughs> I was like in awe of those people. So yeah, I, I think it just was more about like, I knew that I had sort of missed these integral years and that I was headed for late teens, early college years or whatever that looks like. And I, I, w I didn't want to miss that. And I knew that if I didn't lose the weight, I wouldn't have felt comfortable sort of dating and going to parties and, and sort of all the natural things that come with that period of your life. I totally relate to staring at other people's relationships with food and yeah. then just like not being able to compute how we can sit here at a Mexican restaurant and you don't have to annihilate all the chips and guac. Like, how totally. are we not doing that? You know, I felt like when I was at my worst place with food, I always knew where it was. I knew mm -hmm. how much I could have. I knew what I couldn't have. I knew how many calories. I knew what I weighed. I knew everything. And I so envied people who could just eat when they were hungry and stop when they were full. How about, oh, I forgot to eat lunch today. <laughs> I'm like, what? Right. Well, it's funny because now I'm at a really great place with food. I, I do, I'm an intuitive eater. Have you ever been intuitive eating? Yes, I have issues with it. It's okay. Wait, <laughs> let's talk about it. What are the issues? My intuition is never to eat, eat in moderation. Right. Well, I would say that everyone you everyone's situation is different. I don't mm. think that's like an all fix for everyone. And especially like when you detail your family's relationship with food, how your mom ate, and that was modeled to you. And, and you know, it would be very hard to then trust yourself to listen to cues. You make a great point. So I so <laughs> don't feel bad if it doesn't work for you. No, it's and I and I don't mean I only say I have issues with it as it applies to me, because to your point, there's right. you know, there's a different sort of cover for every pot. Like right. and that's that's awesome. Like my hat is off to anyone who finds a way in which that works for them. Yeah. I mean, that's the end goal, right? It's just how can we have a healthier relationship with food? So how do you feel in today's day and age where, I mean, body positivity is a big thing. Like if you were born today, you might not experience the bullying or the, you know, judgment that you received in that body. So, I mean, is there any part of you that's like, you know, upset that, that wave didn't happen when you were growing, but you had to, you had to carry all of that? Or are you happy that now you can kind of tell the tale of how it affected you? I think certainly the silver lining of any of it, and it sounds like trite and overly simplistic, but you can't really change anything because you wouldn't, if you're, the best way to be happy with your past is to be happy with your now, right? And, and I am, I'm really overpaid and incredibly lucky. And, you know, I, I don't know the nature versus nurture part of it. Like, my suspicion is I could walk into a room where I love, there's this old saying or a saying I've heard recently that my ego needs a banquet and my soul needs a crouton. Mm -hmm. I could walk, I could walk into a room and everyone could just be like, you look incredible and you are the most powerful, popular, attractive person we've ever met. And like people fawning over me. And yet it probably, if I'm being honest, still wouldn't be enough. Right. If I'm unchecked in that way. So I don't know. Like if I was born, if I was 13 today with body positivity, I think I'd probably still suffer from similar issues. My ego needs a banquet and my soul needs a crouton. That's it, right? Yeah. Gosh, that's that hits. <laughs> it's so true to think about all that stuff. And I mean, you talk about too, like thinking fame would be the answer or and constantly it's like once you determine, okay, well, if I change my appearance and my body, then I'll be in a better position to have the things that I want, the parties, the social life, the whatever it is. But then what came along with that was a new coping mechanism or like a new numb, number, would you say, yeah. in, in using? 
Yeah, I mean, basically I lost 100 pounds, but I was the same mind in a different body. And I, you know, discovered drugs and alcohol and it was so much more efficacious with so few calories. And I found other substances that, that were pretty effective. And, and so it was like they were incredibly effective mixed with I was like 18 and felt like I had to make up for lost times because so much of my life until that point had been be very careful. Don't mess up your life. Don't mess up your career because you've worked so hard. And if you mess it up, then you won't be able to support you and your mom. Right. And this is a very specific amount of pressure that not all people in their teens contend with. So at 18, I'd suddenly worked so hard and got the body I'd always wanted. And I was like, well, now I want the life. And people at this age are typical. And most of them to be typical means overindulging in these, you know, substances that are probably going to lead you down the wrong road if you do them in excess. And that that was what the next four years of my life looked like. But but I remember it so many times throughout that period until it really started to get bad thinking like, oh, this is just so normal. Like, look at me acting like every other kid at a state university right now. Right. When Yeah. And how did your addiction affect your career? I think it just derailed me. I mean, certainly, like, I think inevitably there was enough time had gone by where, you know, it's it's like anything, word spreads quickly. And as I say, I wasn't a monster. I was just a bummer. And so I think people just quickly get hip to the fact that, like, oh, this might not be the you know, the first person on our list because they seem to be going through something. And Mm -hmm. thankfully, I'm in the kind of business where it's easily forgiven because this is not new, where like an actor or performer is going through a weird period. But I definitely think I I put the brakes on on my life and career for for those years. Will you tell us what happened with Judd Apatow? Because (laughs) I just thought that story. I mean, I don't know us, us commoners, us normal people like me, when we think about celebrities like yourself, we just, I, I guess I never really think about how there are, there are emails sent. Like Josh Peck has an email. Judd Ap- has emails. Like <laughs> they have times. They need to show up to things. We just think you guys float around like superheroes. So will you share that story? Cause I thought it was really fascinating. Uh, sure. Well, shout out to Judd who was, is the best now and was the best then. So I'm 19. I finished Drake and Josh. All I want in the world is to be a real actor. I don't want to be a movie star. I definitely don't want to be the child star. And I don't want to be the funny fat guy. I just want to be an actor amongst actors because it's the thing that I I know that I love most. So I'm like, well, I have my work cut out for me because there's certainly people that are going to pigeonhole me coming off of such a sort of successful kid show. But I auditioned for this movie that Judd Apatow is producing and I get a call and it Judd says, you know, I, I don't think you're right for the part you auditioned for, but you're funny. So come be funny. Why don't we, we'll write a couple scenes for you, but come hang out, pitch jokes. You know, we'll try to fit you in the scenes and, and just see if it works, you know, see what you can do. And I just did not rise to the occasion because I was busy being a typical what I thought, you know, college kid would be, which was drinking and being an idiot and and I wound up oversleeping at times, showing up late. I spent too much time in my trailer when I should have been on set pitching jokes. I basically like it wasn't anything like if if you saw a video of me at that time, you'd just be like, it would probably bore you because it just was me totally checked out and in my own head. But I squandered this like really good opportunity. And the biggest thing that stands out is I remember one day in particular People had told me, like the assistant directors, like, yo, you tend to be a little late. 
don't be late on Friday because Judd's coming to set and it'll be bad for you if you are. And I was late. I was like an hour late. And I just remember coming home to an email from Judd saying, this is unacceptable. And when you're late, it costs the production money. And this will never be okay here or on any other set. And you're really funny, but your professionalism needs work. Now, this is me paraphrasing it from 15 years ago from memory, but I don't, I'm not quite sure I could ever forget, especially because it went to my old email address, Mr. Money 161 at AOL. <laughs> yeah, and that sat with me for a really long time. I mean, it's not like Judd Apatow is good with funny Jewish guys. So I'm sure I didn't really <laughs> shoot myself in the face with that opportunity. But yeah, I mean, that haunted me for really for a really long time. And, and inevitably over time, I was able to see him and, and make a proper amends and do the right things. But I, that definitely stuck out as a moment where I was like, maybe, maybe the way I'm living is not working for me. It's honestly giving like someone saying, I'm disappointed. And it's like the worst thing you could hear, right? Yeah. From someone you look up to. Totally. And as I said before, like, I mean, the fact that he had the foresight then to be like, you have something and no one does that. No one says you're not right for this role. So we're going to write one for you. And that's why he's got, you know, such a, a stable of of really funny, you know, comedians that I'm not a part of. <laughs> but, you know, what? It, it all worked out as it should. And yeah, and I appreciate him because of how much I learned from that moment. Now, I mean, I can't help but think of Jonah Hill when I think of Judd Apatow. Yeah. And what do you think about everything Jonah Hill said recently about body image and him him reflecting on the way that he was always like the fat character and the one that sure. was being made fun of? I mean, do you do you relate to that and, and his approach now to like keep me out of that narrative, which I respect personally? I totally respect it. I mean, Jonah, just uh, knowing him in passing from a few different experiences and my mom running into him at a deli a couple of years ago and was like, you must know my son. Oh my gosh, she did not. And he didn't tell her to get a, stay 30 feet away. He was like, <laughs> I do know your son. He's a nice kid. Oh. And I was like, shout out Jonah. Sorry about that. Um, my mom did it to Ryan Phillippe too. I don't want to talk about it. Oh my God, your mom seems <laughs> like a doll. She's the greatest. Shout out Barbara. Yeah, I, you know, again, like he's... He's in many ways the goal, right? Like a funny dude who then went and did Moneyball, who did Wolf of Wall Street, like can live in both worlds. And and so knowing what I went through, having a quarter of his fame and seeing him sort of having a similar experience, I, I think my hat's off to him. And yeah, and I, I like how chic he is, how cool he dresses. He's so cool. Yeah. On the note of just like, this Judd Apatow email and kind of losing sight of the path. Mm. What do you make of child stars who have troubled adulthoods or later in life, like kind of veer off of, of a healthy path? I mean, I feel like you probably have the best answer than anyone because you saw part of that and you lived it. Is it the yeah. fame? Is it the hunt for money? Is it never being surrounded by people who care for you? What do you think is the denominator that leads people that way i think look i think hollywood someone wants to, do you curse on here yeah someone once said to me like hey man aren't all people in hollywood assholes and i was like aren't most people assholes i was like <laughs> like hollywood's just a microcosm of the world right like most people you wouldn't want anything to do with and then there are some real gems and then there's a handful of people that are just okay and the, the problem is, is that it's under the spotlight. And so if you do have a bit of a rise, that if there's an inevitable fall, that's also people can't get enough of it, right? Like people will buy a front row seat to your fall. 
And so shout out Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> is that a thing? Tickets to my downfall is his album name. Ooh. MGK, <laughs> my bad. It's called Tickets to My Downfall, oh my which I God. think is such a good name. Much respect. I did not know. I swear <laughs> to God. But apparently I'm a huge Machine Gun Kelly fan. Um, I must have heard that somewhere. I think he was interviewed by Howard Stern recently. I must have heard it there. Shout out Machine Gun. Anyway, congrats on the engagement. Just shout anyway. out Howard. <laughs> Just our whole episode. Shout out everyone we love. <laughs> you know, so inevitably, like, I, I think I was saved by the fact that I had such a great mom who sort of endowed me with this like deep sense of security and love, which was incredibly important. She saved, she's saved me in ways I'll never know, right? By just like loving the hell out of me and also like never co-signing my BS and always like being this just, you know, force for good in my life. Mm-hmm. But I heard Maya Bialik interviewed on a pod recently and I really identified with what she said. And I look up to her just because she's the host of Jeopardy. But, you know, I mean, she similarly was on Blossom and then goes on into Big Bang Theory and has gone on to so much success. And I love what she said that she said something to the effect of, I seem to have a talent for putting on makeup and costumes and pretending to be someone else. All the byproducts of this, the red carpets, the billboards, the press, I'm really not interested in. And I so identified with that. And I've known so many people over 20 years who I could tell right away. I'm like, oh, you're in it for the billboard or like Mm. something out of your control. And if that's your thing, it's so tenuous anyway. But I just don't think it's ever going to feed you like I love acting. I don't, I try not to judge it. I didn't judge it when I was on Vine making, you know, acting for my phone or when I'm on set with right now, Christopher Nolan, like both, you know, the highest and I don't want to call it the lowest, but Vine is, you know, just a different form of, of, of creating. And so I just know that I want to create and however it can reach the audience, I'm okay with. That's what I'm interested in. And that's the thing that drove me through challenging periods through periods of unknowing, which is like, I'm just doing what I know my job is. Okay. Reminder, reminder. It's always good when you have friends who remind you of things. Consider me that friend. I am reminding you that Mother's Day is just around the corner. Do not forget to pick out the perfect gift for mom, grandma, yourself, or even a friend. And luckily for you, if it's last minute, Macy's has you covered with their gift finder and amazing gifts at any price. Let me just list a few great ideas for you. Okay, if you go to Macy's.com slash gift finder, first of all, Macy's has gifts for every budget. If you're looking for just like the coziest slippers for under $25, they have that. Or treating mom to something luxurious like Dolce & Gabbana sunglasses. Or maybe does your mom love breakfast in bed? You can spoil her with a top-notch espresso maker and more cookware. There is tons, so much to choose from. I could keep going. If you're also always stealing your mom's makeup, you love helping your mom with her glam routine, buy her a nice Mac lipstick set or a dry bar hairdryer. If she's your fashion icon, you could buy her some Steve Madden shoes or a handbag to polish off her look. I mean, when Macy says they've got something for every mom, they mean it. Even like Godiva chocolates for the foodie, Fitbits for the gym buddy. Okay, okay, I'll stop. But seriously, so, so many ideas, so many gifts, all at Macy's.com slash gift finder. Make this Mother's Day an especially memorable one by heading to Macy's.com slash gift finder. Once again, Macy's.com slash gift finder. Now, what would you say was your epiphany or get your head out of the sand 
moment from feeling like you kind of were sleeping away or parting away opportunity to now where you are, Turner and Hooch and How I Met Your Father, all these things. I mean, are you still wanting to become an Adam Sandler and follow the Jonah Hill dream? Are you happy with where life is and you got your family and your son and you're riding the wave? What do you make of it? I don't know what, you know, I don't know. It's a really long life. So I, I really don't know what's next or what's what's going to be the next thing. I, I'm really into my son. I really love being married. That's good. Yeah, he's good people. <laughs> no, you say that at 25, but you're going to meet a lot of people. You're like, are they really into their kid? Yeah. Trust. <laughs> like, I'm like, I know they're into brunch. And I know they're into Coachella week one. Yeah. Not sure they're into their four-year-old. Oh, sad. Yeah. Well, that probably hits for you because wasn't that similar to the experience you had being raised by a single mom? Yeah, I mean, my dad just bounced. <laughs> he was like, I'm out. But he also had a whole other family. So on some level, you know, someone once said to me that when they sort of heard about my dad, they're like, well, I guess like majority rules. And I was like, what? But it kind of resonated because he had like three grown kids and a wife when he had a well-timed separation of six hours to hook up with my mom. Oh, my God. <laughs> and like... You know, I, I I try not to judge him only by what he did to me because I can't be the arbiter of the absolute right. And I think that he probably, from what I know, from some crafty Facebook and Googling, was like a good dad to his kids and knew his family. He just probably was really, really scared. And that's not an excuse, but I know what it is to be scared. And it wouldn't have been right for me, but he did what was right by him. You're such a good person. I'm all right. I, but how do you even get to a place to say that and really feel that? Is that like years of therapy? Is that great friends who've consoled you? I mean, you know. You know, when I was 26, I'd, I'd never seen a picture of my dad. And then I found out that he passed away. And I was it was hard because I'd spent most of my life, even though I didn't want to meet him, I loved having this emotional grenade that I could like, because I knew where he lived, like the state and I was like, that I knew that I could unleash on his life at any time and just like mm. blow up whatever he thought he had going for himself. So when he passed away, it felt like, oh, like, wow. He like, he brought me into this world and he left exactly on his terms. So eventually, and he was older, he was in his 80s when he died. So he didn't really have much of an online footprint. So I started to look up my siblings on Facebook and I found like a treasure trove of pictures of him at bar mitzvahs and weddings. And then eventually when he passed away, these beautiful tributes to their dad. So that was sort of the first part where I was like, oh, okay, like what I know of him wasn't the only part of him. Like he was also the dad I wanted him to be for me, he was for them. And then when my wife was pregnant, we didn't find out the sex of the baby until he was born. And I imagine I'd only have a girl because I've done too much musical theater. I'm like, I, I don't have the requisite testosterone. We're giving feminine energy here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I got, you know, and then when I realized I was having a boy or my wife, you know, gave birth, I was like, of course, right? Because this is my cosmic comeuppance. Like, this is my opportunity to feed this bad feedback loop. And in being the dad for him that I always wanted for myself, I was sort of correcting trauma, like, you don't always get the amends you deserve, but sometimes you give it to yourself by not giving it to the next generation. So yeah, I, and then like, I would get off on these super innocuous activities, like walking him to the, you know, for ice cream or like changing his diaper and be like, wow, my dad missed out on all this. And I kind of felt bad for him. And that's nice. When you can start feeling bad for people, it's like so much better than anger. Yeah, you have the compassion to recognize like, 
you can see what it might have felt like to be in their shoes or how messed up they must have been or what they must have been going through to act a certain way. Yes. I think that's when you reach that level of unlock because you're like, it's never about me. No, you're so right. It's never about me. That's a good one. It should be your next podcast. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I it's should. It's never I, about me. I should do that. <laughs> so now as you navigate life, how are you making sure you are keeping the, those gems in your life, filtering out the social climbers and people who might be using you? Because it seems like you have so much experience. I mean, for being so young, now with your book and everything you've been through, I'm like, nothing's getting past Josh Peck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean... I don't really have much of that. I mean, I because I don't really like freak like because I'm not at the Revolve party right now. Or like, can you imagine it's Monday? I'm not a, like I show yeah. up at the Revolve party. They're like, Josh, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> you missed it. <laughs> well, so actually, I was there. How was it? Okay, so this is good <laughs> I've to heard talk about. some things. Yeah. Okay, so I actually was the first wave of people who didn't have the freaking fire fest, you know, situation happen. Hot. However, because you're powerful. No, because yes. I was a loser and showed up exactly when it opened. Good for you. Thank you. We love a punctual queen. Yes, we love a punctual <laughs> queen. Judd, are you listening? Hire me. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, but it was a scene and it's, it's tough when I'm like with my fiance, Max, who's not in this world. And I'm like, oh my God, I love that girl's content. I want to go say hi. He's like, go say hi. I'm like, I can't, I'm a loser. He's like, you're not a loser. I mean, the whole, the whole thing. And then if you go up to someone and then they're an asshole, you're like, damn it. But I, I wanted to like you and I bought your merch and I, you know, <sighs> so it's such a world. And then you're like, I just, oh, I don't want to be a part of it at all. But then I'm like, but you have to. And then there are the good people. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's not, I mean, I'm not good at forced fun events. <laughs> what is forced fun events? Like at Coachella, if you're not having fun, there's something wrong with you. Or if you're not presenting the look of being fun. And I'm like, I just want to live and I want to be at my own temperature at my own time. <laughs> I love okay? that. Okay. I am my own cake. And it depends when you put the toothpick in because it might come out mushy. Right. And like, but again, I have to remember that for those influencers or for those people that I'm kind of one of them, you're one of where you know, it's what we do. It's part of it. It's like, it's work. It's not, you know, go. maybe it's when they're back at their house and they're by the pool and they're chilling with their friends. That's fun. But like, if they're there, they ain't on the Ferris wheel for fun. They're there for the picture. And that's okay. Right, right. Well, that's why I like to have conversations like this because you know that everyone on the, at the end of the day is a human has, I mean, the most comforting thought I have, this would be the, this would be the title of my book. Oh my God, maybe I shouldn't even say it. I'll say it, whatever. I'm, if you take it from me, I'll find you. Everyone has cried themselves to sleep. Yeah. I just always come back to that sentence. Like everyone, the coach I had in college who I thought I was so afraid of and he was so intense and he won two Olympic medals. This guy that I think is too cool, this girl, like, everyone has sobbed and ugly cried themselves to sleep. Right. And I mean, even like you, it's like I grow up and I, I watch your show and I think you're awesome and you're funny and you live this life and then come to read your book and hear all about you. And like, not everything is cupcakes and rainbows. And I, I shouldn't even be surprised because we're all human. Totally. And like, I don't know if you remember, there's like a line in my book where I'm sort of like intimating me dying to be like you, basically. Like, I, I not you, but I say like- Just like any person not in it. Not in it, but like also- to me, I would be like star division one athlete, like at a, you know, big school like SC, like some, you know, fancy, mm -hmm. cool school. And yeah. like, yeah, there's a, of course, like from from a 30,000 foot view, you're like, what do they have to complain about? Totally. But the reality is it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter. Well, and I felt that, too. The guilt trip of oh, I can't be depressed. I'm not allowed to need therapy. I'm not allowed to be anxious. Like totally. people have it worse. I think that's really hard now is having the perspective and holding space for others but also not self-sabotaging your own issues. God, yeah. it's the balance of life. 
I, yeah, and and even under the best circumstance, even if you have perfect parents and a perfect rearing, like at some point you you will have to self parent yourself. Like there will be catching up to do. You will have to fill in some of the gaps that even the best of parents, the most well-intentioned people can't give you everything. And it's incumbent on you to do that finishing. And like, you know, and I don't mean to make light of anyone's story because I have a challenging one. You do. We all do to a certain extent. And a lot of people with much harder stories than ours. But like, we all have a sad story. And inevitably, you're going to get to a certain point where people are going to stop making excuses for you. And I have, I mean, I'm 35, right? So I don't know whether it's 30 or 32 or there's like, there's some age where everyone makes a click in their head and goes, yeah, but my life's hard too. And like, but I went to therapy and I did what I could do, like to like try to get better. And if you're walking around and you're, you haven't done that work, it's going to result in some, some negative outcomes. I want to ask you just one last question because I think you're super wise. I don't know. Like, I'm surprised Thanks. you haven't read all the self-help books because I... I read a little and then I get tired. Because you know so <laughs> much and just all these various podcasts you listen to. I'm like, I got to go listen to all these. How do you deal with what you think people are thinking of you? And I don't want to, I don't want to make it as simple as like what other people think, but like walking onto a set and feeling maybe a sense of, okay, like they all, they all probably think I'm this person from this or this show is my opportunity to break out of this mold. How do you just relax and be present and let yourself do what you're good at and create and not get so consumed with the story around who you are? Well, I, my ego suffered a lot from that for a long time. I was desperately worried about what you thought of me and what you must be thinking of me. And especially excelling at something uh, during your adolescence, you have to know, and a buddy said this to me and it was pretty revelatory, that it, you're an anomaly. Like that particular childhood moment, whether it was being a Division One athlete or, you know, being on a TV show, that's an anomaly. Like, and you cannot continue to judge your progress against like, maybe you having this gross spurt moment as a kid. Like there's one Leonardo DiCaprio. There's one Tiger Woods. Like there's there's one Beyonce. Like and and it's not a detriment to us to assume that we're not them, right? Because they're one of the, you know, a handful of people who literally started when they were, you know, two and just crushed it nonstop the whole way. For most of us, there are moments in our twenties, our thirties and even forties where where you can be thoroughly un unsure of what's next for you and what your life's going to be and re being relentlessly human. And the only thing that, that really combated that for me was like as an actor walking on set was like five years ago, I went back to acting class and I was like, I know that I've worked, that there's enough data su to suggest I have some talent, but there was a lot of data to suggest that like I had bad habits and there were blind spots. And that if I really wanted to commit my life to this thing, I had to be willing to do everything I could to be my very best, even if that wasn't good enough. Even once I was my very best, I might not be Adam Sandler. I might not be someone like that. So I went back and I did all that work. And so now when I walk on set, like I know I'm prepared. I did everything in my power. I also know I'm a good hang. I'm fun. <laughs> like, I used to take on people's energy, like who were like awkward and like weird. And I'd be like, I'm the worst. Like that didn't go well. 
95% of the time, someone nice and lovely like you, someone who's all right like me, like if it's a weird situation, it's probably someone else. <laughs> it's probably right. them. I love that. I feel the same way. I'm like, I'm always asking questions. I will do anything to make it not You're be awkward. Lovely. So if it's awkward, it's on you. I love that. <laughs> it's them. Don't take on their energy. That's so hilarious. like I'm prepared and I'm a fun hang. I don't know what else I could do. <laughs> That's your next book. Be, how to be prepared and be a fun <laughs> I love it. Josh, thank you so much. I'm rooting for you. I'm a bigger fan than ever before. Same here. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Of course. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of RealPod. If this hit home or helped you in some way, send it to a friend, a teammate, roomie, share the love, share the realness. New episodes of RealPod come out every single Wednesday. So make sure you are subscribed to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To leave a rating or review of the show, head to iTunes and let me know what you think. I love hearing from you. Not to mention, you can stay connected with RealPod throughout the week seeing behind-the-scenes info and sneak previews of upcoming guests by following the at RealPod account on Instagram. All information about today's show and guests will be linked in the description of this episode. Thanks again for listening. I love you guys so, so much. Let's go dominate the day. And as always, keep it real.